Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Liebel at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Drs. Matthew Rhodes-Purdy, Rachel Navarre, and Stephen Utick to discuss their new book, The Age of Discontent, Populism, Extremism, and Conspiracy Theories in Contemporary Democracies, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023. How do we explain the rise of populism, extremism, and conspiracy theory in the Americas and Europe? Why do members of society come to feel this strong sense of discontent with their political system, so deep and broad that they believe the system to be irreparably broken? Scholars have explained these phenomena using two main models. The first focuses on economics and imagines the source of discontent is long-term economic change that creates winners and losers. An alternative model posits that cultural factors, such as hostility to ethnic, racial, and gender minorities, is more significant than economic attitudes. The three authors of The Age of Discontent build on these models by combining the insights of political science with a tool from political psychology, effective intelligence theory. If emotions shape cognition and behavior, economic and cultural backlash might be better understood as sequential. The book argues that economic discontent is often the root cause, but this begins a chain. Economic discontent leads to a negative emotion that triggers cultural attitudes such as out-group hostility or in-group solidarity. The book presents a compelling theoretical framework the authors call effective political economy. Economic troubles can prime citizens to embrace culturally discontented narratives, leading to various forms of discontent based on local conditions. The Age of Discontent uses qualitative and quantitative methods to examine American sentiments of discontent expressed primarily during the Trump administration, Euroscepticism, and Brexit in the UK and Spain. They all examine the interactions of economic and cultural issues across the globe. By explaining cases of democratic discontent in different regions and contrasting them with case studies in which discontent was avoided, the book demonstrates how economic crises trigger cultural responses, intensifying discontent with the political status quo. Dr. Matthew Rhodes-Purdy is an assistant professor of political science at Clemson University. He's the author of Regime Support Beyond the Balance Sheet in 2017. Dr. Rachel Navarre is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Bridgewater State University. Rachel co-authored Immigration in the 21st Century, The Comparative Politics of Immigration Policy in 2020 with Terry Givens and Pete Mahanti and my colleague, Dr. Lily Gorin interviewed them previously on New Books and Political Science. Dr. Stephen Utick is a market researcher with an area focus on political psychology, political behavior, and experimental methods. Dr. Utick has published over 30 peer-reviewed articles, and I'm delighted to welcome him, Rachel, and Matthew to the New Books Network. Hi. Hi, everyone. Hi. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks so much. This is a really interesting collaboration. And I think what I'd like to do is start with how each of you came to care about democratic discontent, and then also how the three of you came to um, connect with each other to collaborate on the book. Um, 
Rachel, let me just start with you. Like, wh- wh- how did your research lead you to this question? And 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 then we'll circle back to talk to the collaborative story. Okay. Well, so my research in graduate school and all was on immigration. And obviously with immigration, you end up, especially how immigration is framed. So you end up, um, when you're studying immigration, reading a lot of right-wing sites and learning about right-wing populist movements, especially when your case study is um, Europe as well. And so, but I had always been interested in populism, especially of the right-wing variety. I am originally from Louisiana. Um, I went to high school in the district that voted David Duke in. So this has always been kind of an interesting phenomena for me. And what was interesting is Terry Givens, who was my advisor at the time, um, does a lot of work on the right wing in Europe, or that was her first main book out of her dissertation. I remember her telling me in about 2011 that right wing populism wasn't really an issue in the United States. And we both you know, there wouldn't be enough to write a dissertation on. So instead of focusing on that, I focused on immigration. Um, But Matt is the one who brought me into this project. We went to graduate school together at UT Austin. And so he had kind of started this project and then brought me in. So I guess I'll pass it over to him so you can learn how he came up with it. Okay. Well, I started studying populism. I, I stumbled into it a bit, actually. I was uh, trained as sort of a democratization, democratic quality, democratic erosion scholar. And I was originally looking at Chile, trying to explain why, despite some of their economic successes, they had had so many problems with mass bouts of contentious politics, big protests. People seemed really upset with it. And I, I started looking at how the the quality of democracy, particularly issues related to the quality of representation, government responsiveness, and uh, participation, and, and just a general sense that people felt empowered by democracy, could shape how they viewed the economy, how they viewed, uh, you know, so a lot of Chileans did not see a successful economic system in part because the way they were evaluating it was structured by their perceptions of the political system. They, uh, and so I needed an alternative case for that, one that had kind of the opposite paradox, where you had poor economics, but people people were very supportive. So I ended up looking at Venezuela. And through studying Venezuela, I ended up <clears throat> getting interested in populism. And then interestingly, I got really interested in it from a comparative perspective by teaching about it at UT Austin. Uh, the UT system has a class requirement. Everybody has to take two classes. One's American national government and the other is uh, a special topics course. So I was like, well, there's populism in the US. I'll teach populism in the United States. And um, what I realized was populism is endemic to the United States. There's very few, there, there's perhaps you know 30 or 40 years in US American history that you can identify where there isn't some kind of serious populist movement running around and it spans left, right, and center. We've had repeated bouts of xenophobic populism, uh, you know, centric populism, left-wing populism. So I got really interested in that. And then obviously when, when Trump uh, popped up, that was, uh, you know, Rachel alluded to this a minute ago, uh, upset a lot of the conventional wisdom about, you know, what populism could do in the United States. And I actually stood in front of a classroom and explained why, A, populism is so endemic in the United States, but also 
the same reason it was endemic was the reason why Trump would never win. Yeah, he got elected that semester. So I had to, uh, I, I had to come in that, that Thursday after that Tuesday and basically say, well, you know, I, I sort of have stopped predicting things since then. Um, so that, I mean, that sort of humbling experience kind of got me interested in like, what's going on here? And of course, you know, I, I started looking into it, found the economics versus culture debate. And I just, I was unsatisfied because it felt like both of those things matter. But I couldn't really tie them together. And so I just kind of was juggling it. And then I couldn't find a connection between the two. I couldn't find a theory, a theoretical reason why they would fit. Um, then I got really lucky. I got a one-year visiting position at Boise State University where I met Steve. So I'll turn it over to him at that point. Uh, so um, my interests come from kind of the reverse angle of Matt and Rachel almost, um, is that in my dissertation, I worked a lot on dehumanization as kind of one of those big problems that I'm like, you see it and you see people treated poorly, discrimination, prejudice, that's been kind of the, the line of research I, I took in my academic career. Um, looking at kind of my interest is a lot of times like, what's going on in the world? What are the big problems facing the world? And because, you know, personally, I'm like, I didn't believe for a second I would be the one to solve them, but maybe I could provide some evidence to explain them a little bit. Um, and seeing all those problems rise was was what really motivated me to get into this, because obviously there quickly became the connection to populism, to all of these negative outcomes, right? All of these prejudicial, discriminatory outcomes that happen. Both I, I've trained as a scholar of American politics, so focusing heavily on America, but I've seen it. You know, you see it throughout the world, right? You see it in all these other places. Um, you know, a lot of people, especially American politics, people like to think that America is exceptional in some way and different. But, um, you know, we can see here that um, these problems with discrimination and prejudice are happening everywhere. And problems with populism are happening everywhere. Um, and seeing populism as the connection is not something that really happened until, as Matt mentioned, I was working at Boise State and Matt was... Um, one year visiting professor, we were in the same building and we could see each other. It wasn't a very big department. And uh, we just started talking about the kind of stuff we did. And we started to see those connections to the type of work that we did with Matt's work on populism and my work on on prejudice and, and dehumanization and things like that. And we found the connection. And the connection was, you know, I found a lot of these prejudicial dehumanizing attitudes were always kind of mediated through emotional response, right? We saw those issues with emotions and we started to think when we would just have, have little talks with each other um, in each other's offices to break up the monotony of the day. Um, and like any, you know, sane and normal person, we would start discussing political science. Um, so that's where it would come into. And we, we saw that connection of maybe it's emotions that can help bridge that gap between the cultural and economic explanation and i was you know at the time i was like getting super into the emotions work because i was just starting to see the connections in my research on dehumanization about how important emotions were as a factor in that and so you know i probably started talking about it a lot and matt was probably like hey this guy seems really into emotions work and um, maybe i think I, I mean obviously it works that we could convince each other that it was a reasonable explanation. Well, I think what's so interesting about this project and this story is that, first of all, a lot of people thinking about American politics uh, often don't look to comparative models because they do believe that 
the United States is somehow exceptional. Even people who don't think they think that scholars stick within that subfield in political science. One of the things I've seen in this podcast over the last few years is that it's really impossible to talk about American politics now without reaching out to comparative scholars who have been looking about authoritarianism or discrimination, immigration, all of these topics. It's, it has become necessary to weave them together to write anything that really can have some sort of nuance. Second, it's so interesting that this is a very like spatial uh, happening. So two people went to school together and two people had offices next to each other. And, and that's something that perhaps becomes harder when people are not in offices. Yet I'm kind of guess that the technology helped uh, helped you actually write the book. So it's a kind of a neat, it's a, it's a very neat story that you guys have uh, before we talk about the two models, I just I want you to define democratic discontent a little bit better than I did in the opening, and just talk a little bit about about what that term means um, and and how you uh, unpack it in the book. Right. So democratic discontent is a, a is an umbrella concept, and it is a what we call sort of unobservable concept, right? It's it's not something we expect to be able to measure uh, when we ask a citizen or a person a question on a survey. <clears throat> we don't expect people to understand their attitudes that abstractly for most people. Uh, so we just define it as it's a vague sense of things are wrong here and they're not going to get better. This The system self-correcting mechanisms are broken. Uh, you know, we mentioned in the book that you can't live in a democracy, no matter how high quality, without being occasionally annoyed at the very least, or even really upset with who's in power. That's part of the game. And you get out, you vote them out, and you, and, you know, you keep going. Uh, well, what happens when you vote somebody out and the next person comes in and does exactly the same thing or even something even worse? That's when democratic discontent starts to get in. But for most citizens, democratic discontent is not going to be relevant to their behavior. It's not going to be salient. Unless it was, unless it is, the phrase we use in the book is imbued with meaning. They just sort of find themselves drawn to narratives that reflect what they're feeling and that give it more detail and it can help them explain this uncertain sense of discontent. And depending on what those narratives are is when you get your specific flavor of discontent. And, and so that's going to be determined by A, the feeling of discontent, but B, people's pre-existing biases, prejudices, you know, who they don't like, who they do like, what they think about the world. So they're generally going to latch onto a, a, a narrative of discontent that reflects things that they already feel, but then fills in the explanation for why they're discontented. So uh, discontent can vary based on the target. So if, you know, you can have regime antipathy, which is what I've spent most of my early career studying, where you have more of a systemic challenge. You think the problem is because the system is broken. Populism crops up when you think this isn't really a system issue. This is a personal problem. The, the, the elite are just personally villains. They're, they're evil, they're irredeemable, and they're opposed to the people. You can have discontent with reality itself, which is when you start ending up with uh, conspiracism. Uh, and any of these can be grafted to pre-existing ideologies. So you can have, you know, the right wing element brought in the far right element with, um, you know, uh, gender and racial and ethnic prejudice. You can have a left wing element brought in with, uh, you know, various forms of sort of left wing socialist national populism, which we've seen more in Latin America than we have in the developed world. But it's becoming more common in the developed world. 
and and so that to me the core of the concept is just this idea that the thing is broken and it's not going to be able to fix itself that that element of hopelessness i think is a big part of discontent that ordinary methods are not enough to redeem us steve rachel you want to add anything on this big amorphous um concept of discontent that you know sort of motivates the book yeah. Um, so one of the things about this is just as you said, with um, comparative politics, American politics does tend to stand out by itself. And a lot of the stuff that was kind of edging at discontent or the measures that kind of suggested discontent or people being unhappy with the system focused on the right, because a lot of this comes out of the European, you know, European studies and stuff like that. But you know, Matt is a Latin Americanist. Um, I studied a little bit of Latin America. In Latin America, the discontent is not always on the right. There's a lot of discontent on the left as well. So we wanted to try to find a measure that would work both for the left and right to feel somehow to express that the democracy is not working for them or that democracy has left them behind or society is not reflecting their values and ideas that would work on both the left and the right, but also across countries. Um, Because you can't ask the same sort of questions about race that you do in the United States as you can in Europe or Latin America. And you can't ask the same questions about race in Latin America that you would do in Europe. So that was part of the goal of this book was trying to create a framework that would work, which of course means it's more generalizable and less detailed, but that would work across time and space. Uh, And a key point with uh, democratic discontent is that um, we're not evaluating whether or not this discontent is about something real, right? It's, It's a feeling. It's how people feel, right? People on the left and the right can feel discontented with democracy for very different ways, and very different reasons. And some of those can be incredibly valid and other ones can be all perceptions that people have in their mind, right? They can believe that they're getting trampled on by the system and that everything works against them, even if that's not the case. But those emotions and those beha- and the way it influences their behaviors work exactly the same as if that was true. That's great. And one of, I want to say that one of the highlights of this book for me, I mean, people who listen to this show regularly know that I fear books like this. I'm, you know, I'm a political theorist. I don't do quantitative methods. And when I see that quantitative methods are going to be a big piece, I always take a deep breath. But um, I happen to have best friends who are in psychology and psychiatry. So I, I was I was sort of intrigued by the idea that that some of that I might be more comfortable in understanding of. One thing I think is a great feature of this book for people to assign it to students, um, to read it themselves, even if they're not like directly in the, 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 the fields of the three authors, is the way in which you stop and define things in these careful, clear um, <clears throat> nuanced ways. And so there are moments like this in the book. And, and one of them involves this, like thinking about these aspects of discontent in which you talk about how discontent isn't just about, as Rachel said, it's, it's like just not being annoyed at politics. It, it is really much broader, you say. It, 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 it spills into this idea of like all politics are bad. So it has this broad quality. And then you also say that it has this 
deep quality that that actually these people are not just bozos making mistakes, but they're actively maligning and they're and everything is so broken that it, it can't possibly be fixed. And then you add a third, which is that you say that it's cumulative, that, you know, dissatisfaction, being annoyed goes back and forth. But um, as has been already alluded to by by both Matt and Rachel, this is different. And the sort of discontent you say can sort of like look like it's erupting, even though it's kind of been simmering because of the last feature, which is that you say like it's latent, it's lying there. It's it's sort of seemingly unobservable, which of course leads to the problem of trying to then write a book about it and identify something that, that isn't always out um, in the open. Uh, before we move on to what Steve is alluding to in terms of effective intelligence theory, I want to just explain briefly the two models, the economic and the cultural, that have kind of been with us in, in, in various fields and good people have contributed them to. That's another great feature of this book. This is not a book where you say, like, everybody's been wrong until us. This is a book that is incredibly respectful of all the work that's been done previously and constructively shows ways to connect it rather than to disparage. So I also loved that part of the book as well. So just quickly, the the economic and the cultural model, what do they look like? And and what kind of methods do people usually use to to study them? You know, is it is it more macro? Is it more micro? Uh, what what do the two other views look like? So the economic model is it's it's pretty simple. It's just globalization plus economic crisis. Uh, the the benefits of globalization are broadly distributed. Even if you think globalization is is net beneficial, which evidence seems to suggest it is, the harms are more concentrated in specific groups. Typically, sort of low skilled manual laborers, people in manufacturing, and those kind of trades. And Globalization sort of puts economic pressure on them, but also has reduced the social safety net to protect them because of the need to keep taxes low and uh, cut spending and fiscal discipline. So as a result, when an economic crisis happens, it tends to explode all this previously simmering upset over the economy. And that theory tends to look pretty good at the macro level. So if you're looking at the county level or the state level or the municipal level, country level, and you're looking at things like exposure to foreign competition or exposing to competition from uh, from labor for immigrants, those sorts of things, there's pretty strong results that that predicts discontented behavior, whether that's supporting populist leaders or voting for something like Brexit that we define as, as a discontented policy. The evidence is strong there. The cultural argument is a little bit tougher to pin down. Uh, different people have different versions. But the fundamental, there, there's a book title whose author I can't recall, unfortunately, at this point, that's sort of uh, Somewhere Versus Anywhere, I think is the, t- the title. And it's I'll this put idea it into the notes. So if anybody's interested, we'll have a link to so. it. Yeah. And it captures the difference really well. There are There is a split in society, this argument goes, between educated, mostly urban, uh, more ethnically, racially diverse uh, sort of post-materialist cosmopolitans, people who generally see themselves as sort of citizens of the world and have this very, uh, very strong emphasis on self-expression and, you know, accepting, uh, especially, you know, uh, sexual and gender minorities. So there's that group. And then on the other hand, there are the traditionalists, people whose identities are very rooted in, in place and where they're from. They tend to be older. They tend to be members of the ethno-racial majority. They tend to be less educated. 
and generally feel threatened and disrespected the, the, by this new group of sort of highly educated cosmopolitans. And it's that clash between the two, particularly the rising power of the, of the urban cosmopolitan class that makes the traditionalists feel disrespected, ignored, like they're being falsely accused of being racists or, uh, you know, prejudiced when in fact all they're doing is being patriotic in, in their eyes. And it's the, and it's, it's that sense, not just that our values are right and there's a wrong, but ours are being disrespected and theirs are not that drives that. And that generally looks really good when you actually ask people on surveys, how do you feel about the economy? How do you feel about culture? How do you feel about politics? When you compare those economic and cultural variants, culture wins almost every time, regardless of the specifics of the model. And so, like I said, this is a situation where the, the methods matter a lot because which kind of method you're using sort of determines what you find. And lucky for us, I guess, that's consistent with a sequential model like we have. If, you, if you're running a sequential model and you're doing a point in time survey of people's attitudes, you're going to find last link in the chain is what matters and you're not going to see an effect for things in the back if you don't know they're in the back if you don't come in with strong theoretical expectations you don't know what to look for so you end up finding the thing that's easiest to find it's sort of the old thing about the drunkard looking for their car keys under the street light right like people will find whatever part of the story is in the place that's easiest to find with whatever method they're using you have a great moment in the book where you say it's like touching an elephant and one person is touching the trunk and thinks it's a snake and the other person is touching the leg and thinks it's a tree. So it's it's, a, it's a incredibly compelling in the way that you do this. Um, Sorry, just a quick shout out. I mean, we wouldn't have been able to do any of this without the previously existing work. So, you know, people like Norris and Cultural Backlash and uh, you, you know, Goodwin and Ford in the United Kingdom. And uh, I, I don't want to name drop everybody, um, but just like Ike and Green in the United States looking at economics and, and populism or Jacob Hacker and some of that work. Uh, you know, we're connecting stuff that's already there and we wouldn't be able to do that without that. So there's tons of, you know, thanks owed by us to other people here. You do a great job in the book, though, of expressing that thanks as you go. And I, again, I, I read a lot of these books, and I'll just say this is for those authors who want to have that kind of respectful discourse. You should read this book not because of the content, but because of the way that they go about doing this. And it's not cumbersome, because sometimes it is really cumbersome to read these incredibly boring lit reviews in which the, the, the why and the what is not communicated as directly. This is beautiful. So I, I really congratulate you and how you did this. Steve, um, effective intelligence theory is uh, this sort of connective tissue between these two arguments, that two models that come at this discontent using very, very appropriate and well-used uh, 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 methods, but you're introducing something else that's not generally, or is sometimes used in political science, but not not regularly. So tell us a little bit about what effective intelligence theory is. And um, also, if you can, you, you, you know, you, you're also very careful in the book to talk about language, and you say that you're kind of renaming anger in, and making it into resentment. And you, and you have a very, very compelling explanation as to why. So if you can also 
cue everybody in into into how that's part of this as well would be fabulous. Yeah, so um, affective intelligence theory um, developed by um, Marcus McEwen and Newman um, in the 1990s. The, the main book came out in the early 2000s. Um, is one of the theories of emotions, and these theories of emotions often um, they often seem very nebulous because there are a lot of theories in a lot of fields, right? Psychology has a lot of theories. Um, you know, most most social science disciplines have their own theory of emotions. Um, affective intelligence theory is the one we use because a lot of them actually say really similar things. They just use different words a lot of times. Um, a benefit of it is it's very parsimonious for us. Um, when it looks at negative emotions, it looks specifically at anger and anxiety, right? Which we can call anger, resentment, call anxiety, fear, typically often can be used interchangeably. Um, you know, some psychological theories of emotions will look at, you know, 24 different emotions, which is very difficult for us. And in fact, most of those emotions can be classed as some subset or combination of, um, in terms of negative emotions, anger or anxiety, right? Resentment or fear. They all kind of fit under a larger umbrella or there's some combination of the two. Um, so by allowing this parsimonious explanation, what's nice is that um, affective intelligence theory is, is very um, theoretically driven, right? Um, where uh, some, some theories of emotions are empirically driven, right? There are measurements, you know, you measure, you can, you can literally measure where said sections of the brain, where there's some activity, right? And then you try to give a name to that emotion. Um, the theory-driven part of affective intelligence theory is what really drew, drew us there, right? Where affective intelligence theory talks about negative emotions typically felt as, and there is some stuff about positive emotions, enthusiasm, which we don't use quite as much, right? But um, so I'm going to focus on the negative emotions. With anger being kind of this, um, you know, kind of this, this dispositional systems here where anger you know, often has you kind of confront things, right? You get mad about something and you approach that thing. You want to solve your problems of anger, right? Like you're mad at someone, you want to fight somebody. That's the classic example of it, right? Whereas anxiety comes in as this avoidance emotion, right? When you're anxious about something, you want to stay away from it, right? Uh, I think the example I wrote up in the book was that, um, you know, you see a snake in the grass and you say, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta stay away from that thing, right? And there's often like an evolutionary basis for these too, right? Like you are afraid of a snake because a snake could bite you and poison you and make you sick, right? And it doesn't matter if you know that that snake is poisonous, you just have an idea, you know some snakes are poisonous. And because of that, you want to avoid them. And that's why anxiety tends to be an avoidance emotion, right? Our thoughts are when people are faced with economic distress and crisis, affective intelligence theory fits really well because you can experience both of these emotions or one or the other, depending on who you are in response to a crisis, right? Imagine uh, someone who gets laid off from their job in a recession, right? They have a hard time finding a new one. They can feel any emotion, right? They could feel anxious for sure. They could feel anxious about their ability to find a new job, anxious about the uncertainty of their economic future. They could also be angry right? They could be mad at the people they view as responsible for causing a recession, for causing them to lose their jobs. 
and other people can feel both emotions, right? You can feel these emotions simultaneously. You can feel anger and anxiety at the same time. Because of that, it worked really well with what we were studying, right? Um, and that, that was our goal is to fit the right theory of emotions at the right level of detail that actually fit the problem of how economic crises relate to populism. So emotions precede conscious thought and it's not that people are exclusively doing this rational calculation in their head about the extent to which economic conditions are, you know, affecting their lives. There's something else that happens. And so the, the, the step in the book, and you have some really great charts. Charts are another thing that often make me cringe because sometimes I find they make things worse than better. This is great that you know there is actual economic discontent, but it's the negative emotion about that that then pushes people into these other cultural hostilities, uh, you know, in-group or out-group hostility. Um, do you want to say a little bit more about that connective tissue and how it connects the, the two um, models? Um, I don't know if we, or maybe we've done that well enough, but if you think we haven't, please yeah, add it I, in. I, yeah, I would like to throw in a little bit, just sort of high theory guy here talking. <laughs> that's sort of that's sort of yeah. my my role in the project is is the overall sort of art reaching theory. And you know, I I think I probably have an experience uh, similar to some of the readers in that I got introduced to this stuff by Steve, and so I, I think Steve sort of studied it and knew it before the project, whereas I learned at part of the project, and it was this like light bulb dawning, you know, sun descends from the heavens, the shadows disperse moment. I'm like, this is this makes sense. And there were a couple of things about it. First of all, just the idea of emotions, not as states of being, but as surveillance systems was completely new to me. And this idea, you know, emotions as, as connecting these big political attitudinal changes just didn't seem to fit right because they're fleeting, right? You get angry and then you get over it. You get anxious and then you get over it. Well, no, you're always angry. You're always anxious. These systems are humming along you know, prior to you ever consciously realize it, you just notice them when they sort of get so aroused that they hijack your conscious decision making process. That's the only time you notice them, but they're always there. And the other thing that really hit was the idea that emotions are there to shape your behavior and the way you think without you consciously deciding to do so. It's essentially the purpose of emotions, Steve mentioned evolution, is just reducing cognitive load. It's about letting you make decisions quickly and with limited brain uh, real estate being used. And so to me, that really helped because the big problem with saying, well, both culture and economics matter is that they have completely different theoretical views of what motivates human behavior. You mentioned the rational calculating person. That's who you find in the economic stuff in, the, in that literature. Uh, the cultural values, it's all about identities and, and values and norms and people's perceptions of the economy, even if they matter, are shaped so much by that that they really, it really doesn't matter. So this, this, you know, most theories of emotions wouldn't have helped with this because it sort of, it kicks people into rational mode and it doesn't make sense. How are we transcending this? But AIT worked because, oh, when people get angry, they get aggressive and they start relying on pre-existing habits of mind. In other words, they double down on their biases, prejudices, and cognitive shortcuts. When people get anxious, they stop. They go into information mode. They're more willing to question existing assumptions like, hey, the political system works and look for explanations that can help them understand what's going on. 
So those two things, that that pre-conscious, just the fact that it's these genuine behavior, general behavioral and cognitive changes really unlocked this whole thing for us because that allowed us to connect. Oh, if you're angry about economics, you're just angry. It affects the cognitive processes and behaviors in ways that very clearly map on to political discontent and cultural discontent. And there's no reason why they should not travel because they're not tied down to the original stimuli. They are general changes in how you're acting and thinking. Now, it's terrific. And actually, you know, we'll stick to your book, but this has wider implications for everyone in political science who has ever put up one of these models that doesn't include emotional issues. And I, I won't name names, but my own frustrations from graduate school stem from this inability of the quantitative to include the qualitative. And so, you know, Matt, as you're answering there, I mean, you're the, the, there's no disparagement of either form, but you're using a mixed models approach because you need both. You need the quantitative, the qualitative to go macro and to go micro, but then you need this additional method, this focus on psychology and emotions to make some sense of those things. Your book is very ambitious this way. I mean, this is this book, just the theory part could be a book, but then there are these case studies and we're not going to be able to cover them all in a podcast. But what I'd like to do is to give the people who I hope will read this book some idea of how this plays out in your case studies. So why don't we just choose one? Rachel, we'll start with you. You choose whichever one you want and just a little, give us a taste of what that part of this book looks like, the non, the applying of the theoretical. Okay, so I will pick the Spanish chapter. Um, I did most of the work on the Spain and Portugal. Um, and so Spain was really interesting. And this was very interesting because so Podemos had um, arisen and they're a left-wing populist party. Um, they had just run the EU back when I was doing field work and stuff. So we bought in Podemos and we were going to study left-wing populism in Spain. Well, then all of a sudden, while we're writing this book, a right-wing populist challenger emerges, Vox. And Vox has now um, has seats in several regional governments, several um, local municipal governments. They're often in coalition with the center-right party, the um, popular party. And it's quite possible, I think they have um, right now, well, right now it's a coalition government between the socialists and Podemos We Can, um, but it's very likely that the next Spanish government, um, the election will be held later this year, will include the center-right party, the PP, and Vox. So we went from this very interesting space where Spain, even though it's a multi-party system, um, Typically, there's been two parties in power since the transition from democracy. It's been going back and forth between the socialist and the center-right party. Um, all of a sudden, there's multiple parties in Congress. They're having coalition governments. And it's not like the little regional parties. It's parties that have seats throughout Spain. Um so the Spanish chapter, I think, is really interesting because we were able to actually field a survey in Spain right as Vox was becoming popular. So people were voting for Podemos, they're voting for Vox, and we were able kind of to explore that. 
Because another interesting thing is everyone up until Vox emerged was like, well, Spain Spain and Portugal kind of have this built-in immunity from right-wing populism um, because of the transition, the um, legacy of Franco and the legacy of Salazar. Well, this disproves that. Um, It took a little bit longer, but they came out. And so we have to explain why. And it's all these emotions. Um, It's, you know, obviously a the center left or the socialist party and the center right party become very close together in the same space. We have the independence movement in Catalonia or um, in Catalonia, and then we have or Catalonia, and then we have the massive scandals in the center right party, allowing for a space for the far right party to emerge. And so I think that the Spanish case, I mean, I am partial, um, but I do think the Spanish case is a very interesting case here in the book. Um, You mentioned as you were explaining uh, surveys and experiments, and and actually I'm not sure that we've clarified that you, what you are all doing and because you're doing multiple things and some of them are happening in the United States and some of them are, you know, pulling from work that other people have done. So just briefly, what what are the kind of methods that that you all are using and gathering for these case studies? So we use experimental methods. Those are in the United States just because it's hard to collect data elsewhere. And we basically use those to document each step of the sequential theory. Sequential theories are really hard to test with survey data, even if they are attitudinal, because you're only getting people wherever they're at in the sequence. So it's really hard I mean, there are methods that can do it. I wouldn't trust them without backup. Uh, so the, the nice thing about experiments is you can expose people to treatments designed on each step of the, of the sequence. And we used a couple of things. We used video treatments uh, where we, I mean, we had, an, we had economic discontent treatments where we show a family that lost their home and their jobs during the Great Recession and we, we actually altered the music and the te- and some text placards on that one to evoke either anger or anxiety. So we're sort of trying to direct people to one emotion or the other. And then we test their, their uh, emergent political attitudes, cultural discontent, populism, that stuff. We have some written treatments uh, where we ask people to write, you know, think about a time when you felt like the people who were supposed to represent you didn't care about you or, or turned their backs on you or something like that, which is... Uh, sort of trying to evoke populist attitudes in people. We have one for cultural discontent, which we're really proud of because it does work on both the left and the right, which is, you know, think about a time you felt like your values and beliefs weren't respected in this country and write for 60 seconds about it. So we have these text priming exercises. And then we have, um, we have survey data, observational data. We collected original data in the U.S. and Spain. Um, Interestingly enough, I think with the Spanish survey, we were like, what, Rachel, like a week or two out from doing a U.S. survey and then Vox blew up and we just switched years like really quick because we really wanted that. And then um, we have lots of stuff from, you know, secondary public opinion sources and things like that. Um, And then just, you know, relying on the work of other scholars, we weren't able to do field work for this. So we're relying heavily on existing treaties and, and discussions of the details of qualitative cases uh, to sort of inform our comparison and then trying to do a structured case comparison um, where we have sort of a a core set of most different systems design and then paired most similar systems 
trying to uh, you know correct for possible selection on the dependent variable issues and so on. That's great. Thank you. That was incredibly well done in a short space of time. Um, is there another example, one of the case studies, Steve, that you want to say anything about um, or sort of highlight some other part of the book that I've not asked about? Yeah, I think um, our examination of the UK versus the US, but especially here, you know, I've talked a little about the US and I want to show off my chops that I'm not just a parochial Americanist um, in talking about the UK. And it's, it's a very interesting situation because we saw this kind of like really strong like type of populist movement in the UK with the Brexit vote, right? Where the UK is, you know, not totally a two-party system, but functionally in terms of who's in power, you know, it's going to be conservative or labor. Um, and both conservative and labor leaders were opposed to Brexit, right? And you kind of saw like the more more fringe uh, uh, leader in Nigel Farage, who was, you know, kind of a big supporter of that, that been his whole thing, right? Uh, the UK Independence Party. And he's kind of runs in this situation of like, you know, the, maybe the populist dog who caught the car, right? Of like, it happened. And now he's like, his, the UKIP now has no one in power as of like last week, I mean, no, no politicians at all anywhere in the UK, right? It's kind of like, now part of that is the Conservative Party in the UK has taken a lot of UKIP's positions on, on certain things, especially on, on immigration, right? Um, is that they've, they've gained power in that way, though the it's an interesting case where the, the charismatic populist leader really didn't get anything out of it, right? He didn't get any power out of it. He, he kind of, you know, he's, I don't know, he, he complains on Twitter now, I think, or whatever whatever social media platform he's on. Yeah, he's become irrelevant, right? Even as the cause was successful, and you can kind of, you know, kind of see that, like, a little chipping away at that populist leader's facade, right? Is he got a lot of things he wanted? but he seems pretty bitter and upset because he didn't get to be the one in charge when they happened. Right. And maybe that's, you know, trying to be hopeful looking towards the future. Maybe that's how people who are these kind of cult of personality populist leaders might get exposed in some way. Right. Is that it really is a lot of times about them and not about whatever they're talking about at the time. Steve, I have a question for you that, I, I thought of as I was sort of reading the book. Um, can you generate discontent without the economic security? Like, can you make people who are economically prosperous feel like they're not? Like skip a step in the in this in this flow chart? Like what is the role of disinformation and misinformation in making maybe people who are economically secure feel insecure? Um, anyway, that, that was, I don't know if that's an answerable question, but it, it was running through my mind as I read the book. I think it is. And maybe, um, a few months ago, I would have struggled more with an answer for this, but right now is a look at the collapse of Silicon Valley bank, right? As a way people who are economically secure starting to feel insecure is there was, you know, with that, there was just like some things the bank was doing to transfer money around. And then Peter Thiel, told all of the, I don't know, all the things he had his hands in to be like, whoa, there's a problem here. Let's free. And then there was this situation where people freaked out and they tried to withdraw money and they, you know, bank collapse was caused in a lot of ways where it didn't need to be caused by a panic of people who were 
quite secure, right? Um, a lot of people, successful business founders, things like that. You know, I mean, you know, even if Peter Thiel lost all of his money that was in Silicon Valley Bank, he'd still have a lot more money than I do. Um, he'd still be in pretty good shape, right? Um, it's one of those things where you see that and you see that kind of panic and insecurity. And I think you you actually do see that among a lot of relatively successful people because a lot of that is is relative, right? Um, you know, if you go from being a billionaire to a millionaire, you're not objectively poor, but you probably feel pretty poor, right? And a lot of these relative things is you don't actually need to be faced with a real crisis. It's about perceptions. And I think anyone can feel that their economic security is struggling, right? I mean, you could make a lot of money and not have a lot of savings. You get laid off from your job and you materially are economically in concern there, right? People have bills, they have things to pay. Even though you're, pro you're materially and objectively better off than someone who's living in poverty, the way you feel about it given the changes could really be a big psychological driver for this. It's very Rousseau, relative inequality yeah. and relative differences can make you feel it rather than the absolute goods. Um, well, sorry, just to, no, do you mind ahead. if I jump in on that really quick? Please. I think just a couple of things. Um, the One of the things this project did for me was I don't think much about inequality because I don't think it matters very much to people's political behavior. What does matter and what's driving the bus here is insecurity. Um, you know, I we, we've gotten pushback from some from some people when we pitch this because it's economic, you know, there's controversy anytime you argue that economic concerns are underlying right-wing populism, because there are particularly in the journalistic press accounts where there's these very sympathetic economic portrayals of right-wing populists that downplay the racism and xenophobia. We don't do that, right? We're, we basically say, no, it's the racism and xenophobia. It's just the economic harm emphasizes all that. Um, but it's not necessarily... You know, when we talk about the people who are who are vulnerable to this, it can be people with, you know, nice houses, nice cars, but they're one bad Yelp review away or one sick day away from losing everything. You know, insecurity, there's no, uh, and we talk a lot about the fact that insecurity has been transferred from the democratic state to individuals over the last, you know, 40 years, basically since the 80s, that's been the transference patterns. Uh, social insurance has moved from the state to individuals. We social insure with home loans and credit cards and things like that, uh, as opposed to with, uh, you know, a robust welfare state. And even in places like Scandinavia, where people are much more secure, that that process has gone. So even when people are objectively more secure than, for example, they are in the United States, they're much less secure than they expected to be and that they have been in the past. So that, um, you know, and I think what's interesting about seeing some of this stuff going on now is just the ruthless sort of proletarianization of everyone, like even these tech workers who used to have, you know, ridiculous perks because companies were competing so hard to get them are now realizing that they're on their own. And when things turn bad, they have all of that stuff can get, this wasn't about loyalty. This wasn't about any kind of real corporate culture. This was about the brutal logic of the market. And when the brutal logic of the market says, take those things away and show everybody the door. But I mean, the logic of the markets uh, is, is what it is. And I think increasingly, this is where inequality does matter is that everybody is becoming more insecure. Eventually it comes for us all. So there are three big questions that motivate the book. And Matt, your last answer is sort of the perfect segue to where I want to end with these questions. 
you know, you, you ask, how did the age of discontent rise? And so much of the book is giving us uh, a theoretical explanation and then also case studies that would demonstrate this. But your other two questions are, how do we put an end to it? And, and how can similar ages be avoided in the future? And early in the book, you have kind of a, an, a really terrific statement that I would say everybody should take a look at about social science and objectivity. And you, know, you use an analogy drawn from a civil uh, trial of an alt-white uh, white supremacist who helped organize the Unite for the Right rally in Charlottesville in the United States. And this expert on extremism who's on the stand compares his work to that of a cancer researcher and says, like, well, I can study a topic with, you know, rigor and scholarliness, but I could still be really motivated to combat it. And and you very upfront say um, at the beginning of the book, and I'm pretty sure it's in the introduction, that then in fact, that is your goal. Like this is not just a study, but you, you're you also motivated to putting an end to this, like ending cancer. So with the time we have remaining, let's talk about the recommendations that you have um, for how we do put an end to this and, and how we can avoid some of this um, in the future. And I guess since we're at the end, I want everybody to, you know, put, have their, their time to reflect on this, because I'm sure as a collaborative book, you seem to have agreed on so much. And there is not this feeling in the book of disconnect between chapters in which it's clear that one person really thinks something other than what is in another chapter. You're really all on the same page, but you're all individuals. So each of you, please. Um, and I guess we'll start with you, Steve. Um, yeah. So I think ultimately, um, I'm trying to think of, of you know, ways, you know, do, do we have solutions and, and are there solutions? You know, the question is, that that's, if the solutions were easy, um, I think people would have come to them by now um, in terms of preventing, preventing discontent. Um, but it's something that I think our work can help build up and other people can think of and work towards that, right? I think it's important for in my non-answer here, um, important for social scientists to actually think about ways that cumulatively and collaboratively we can do things that have net positives towards the world, right? I think we we talk a lot about how social safety nets and things like that could be a solution, but you know, in terms of that, that's one potential solution, right? And to stop such a force like this that is often so inherent and, and innate in how people are and how people's minds work is going to take a lot of attempts at solutions and a lot of ways to make people feel secure. And even if we have a few suggestions, and I think, I think you know, the increased social safety net is a very good one, we need other social scientists to start thinking this way as well and to start thinking with a solutions-driven approach. Okay. So, and it's true. There's just so much explanation and it is refreshing to see in a book, this desire to both explain, but also start thinking about solving. Um, Rachel, your thoughts on, you know, what the research that you did leaves you with thinking that, you know, if President Biden were listening to the podcast or um, leaders around the world, like what, what do you want them to do? And I actually had that thought as I was reading this book, I thought like, who's handed this book to a couple of select leaders around the world? Um, but anyway, you, you answer the question. 
I mean, I do think some of what Biden has done has actually been useful in this, some of the um, economic revitalization and things like that. Providing for people's basic needs and people's, you know, reaching out and providing them with material goods um, is actually a pretty good idea because it feels like people are listening. Um, One of the things that really worries me about the United States right now is the state of the gun debate. Um, Most gun, I mean, there's a thing going around on Twitter right now showing like a poll that Fox News posted about people's, um, what they want from gun control. And most people want things like you have to be, you know, older age, you have to have more background checks. Um, You know, there's a lot of things like this, but no one is doing them. And I think that's a frustration that you often get is if you have this, you know, there's this idea that they're not listening to us and we need to do something. And there's only so far you can go if we're supposed to have a democracy. And I mean, I want to be careful with this because I don't want it to deride um, minority rights. Um, Matt and I do disagree on how much uh, constitutional protections and how much direct democracy they should be. Um, I'm on a little bit more of we need more sometimes than or less direct democracy than him. Um, but, you know, I do think having a situation where people are able to express these ideas and things actually get done, um, is important. Um, of course we do have to be careful because a lot of times people will be like, well, the majority of people want this thing, um, when the majority of people actually don't, or when it actually, you know, affects someone's ability to live. Um, that is a bit different than being like... You know, so we want it to be very clear that sometimes there are different levels of discontent. And this book is talking about majorities and situations in these countries because we do believe that a lot of um, ethnic, religious, gender minorities in these countries have um, really have different reasons for their discontent. And we expect that they would exhibit them differently um, than the majority population. Now, and I think the book does a good job of trying to ask this question, like who ex- who expresses the will of the people? And that could be measured in so many different ways. Um, we know in the US case, for example, that you can have minority rule in the midst of democracy because of gerrymandering or because of the way that you've set up your Senate, for example, and then the way that people have moved around for to a couple of centuries. So I and I and I think part of the hopefulness of the conclusion has to do with making people feel as if their voices are heard, making people's citizenship feel more more real, more um, that there's a point to it. And I, I thought that was very well done. Matt, wh- where are you in this? Um, how do we put how do we put an end to this? I mean, I mean, you set me up really well because making it feel more real. The only way to do that is to make it more real. There's no, there's no fake way to do it. Um, you know, Rachel mentioned that we disagree on sort of courts and things like that. I've actually gotten a little bit more extreme on courts lately. I think they're pretty much useless for protecting minority rights. They do it briefly, and then eventually, what you've done is you've created an institution that can be captured by those who want to violate those rights, which is where we find ourselves in the United States. Um, 
they're just not effective uh, for that in the long term. The, the, the protective effect of the courts on behalf of social and racial and ethnic minorities in the United States is a historical accident and, uh, and a blip. And now we're seeing the consequences of sort of excessive use of what is essentially a guardian, a guardianship regime in the United States where the courts are, are sort of now well beyond any basis in law and are acting as sort of unhindered political actors on behalf of minority rule. And so one thing, one of the things I mentioned earlier, I don't predict anymore. I think we're going to see our own version of, you know, Hugo Chavez or something like that in our lifetimes, a left-wing populist who's responding to minority rule in really aggressive ways. So what I say is just, you have to democratize society. You know, we were talking about the case studies earlier. I, one of the case studies that we use with the countries that didn't have discontent, it wasn't economics that they differed on. They didn't, it wasn't the, the countries that made it through without economic damage. Did. It's the ones that responded and said, and basically communicated to citizens, you know, we understand that this is an apocalyptic moment and that things need to change and we're changing. Now in Canada and Portugal, that was sort of an accident of coalition politics, not really an aspect of high quality democracy. Um, so but in Uruguay, it was. That's an enduring feature of that political system is this really high quality responsive state. And that's just that's what we need. And so there are a couple of specific things and I'll go really fast here because I don't want to talk too much. Uh, but in terms of how we accomplish that, and one is just organize. You have to organize society. You know, social democracy and Keynesian liberal democracy that we've had is the product of the easy organization of people on the lower end of the social economic spectrum, the working classes, you know, aggregating them in huge factories where, and, you know, unions giving them selective incentives to join and act, and then they can take that economic activity and be political. We don't have that anymore. Industrial development's on the, on the decline, but we need to organize the new trades, including, you know, these newly proletarianized, highly educated sectors like tech, but also the service sector. So you, what you see going on in Amazon and, and Starbucks and stuff like that is to me very heartening. Uh, it's a positive sign because that's if you can stitch those groups together into a political movement, then you've got a shot at doing something better. But, you know, when we write this in the book is no matter how democratic we are in our politics, you don't spend that much time in politics. You spend most of your time in educational institutions and firms, both of which are authoritarian and increasingly so. Um, and again, I author's names is not a good suit of mine. So in the notes, but there's a book called Private Government that we're pulling from in this idea that, um, you know, firm, economic firms are best conceptualized as highly authoritarian private governments. And that's where most people spend most of their time. And so one of the arguments that I, that's really dear to my heart in the book is just, we need to press democracy both deep and wide. It needs to become the logic of society with the inevitable consequences being, we're going to have to change how we educate kids. We're going to have to move away from this sort of skills and drills model of education that, produces, you know, factory workers rather than citizens. We need methods that are more designed to develop the autonomy of children as citizens. We're going to need how to change how we do economics, more workplace democracy, more economic democracy. And that also means, and this is tying into what Steve said, this sort of free market laissez-faire system, however economic efficient it may be, which not an economist, not my deal, it's not politically sustainable because the damage it does to democracy in terms of walling off big chunks of possible collective solutions to problems, as well as sort of consigning people to the authoritarian structure of economic firms, both of those things plant the seeds of discontent that eventually are going to rise up and you're going to get protectionist movements, left-wing populist movements. 
that are going to do a lot more harm to market economics in the long run than you would if you just allowed democratic actors and institutions to regulate markets in the first place. Well, thank you so much, Matt, Rachel, Steve. I've been talking to Matthew Rhodes-Purdy, Rachel Navarre, and Stephen Utick about their amazing new book, The Age of Discontent, Populism, Extremism, and Conspiracy Theories in Contemporary Democracies, published by Cambridge University Press in 2023.